If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Well, one thing I remember in reading about you as a kid, you were among the first of the prominent baseball stars who kind of agitated for integrating the game. You had seen these players in barnstorming games and whatnot, and, and you felt it was an injustice. One of the things that I really am kind of proud of myself about is that in my induction in the Hall of Fame, nobody encouraged me on this. I thought this thing uh, alone, and I thought I'd seen Satchel Page, and I'd seen Josh Gibson, and I'd heard about Buck Leonard, and I'd heard about jo some of the other great uh, black athletes. And it just came out that day that I wrote in my speech that I hope someday that the black, great black players of the past, who only because of their color never had a chance to play in the big leagues, and uh, it, hit a, it hit a little note. And the very next year, they come out with a, uh, I got to say, half-assed program for the black players to get into the Hall of Fame. And finally, they changed that to full authenticity of the merits of these guys yeah, uh, to be in baseball's Hall of Fame, and so it was a, I think, a very important move. They had made a, a separate wing. Yeah, right. you know, Jackie yeah. Robinson and those who followed, yeah. full-fledged Hall of Famers. Yeah. But some of the guys from that's before right. in the Negro Leagues, a separate wing, and now they've they've fully included them. Yeah. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, now, here we go again. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, and it is Good Seats Still Available. Yes, the curious little podcast that uh, each and every week uh, strains to go into the uh, the realm of what used to be in professional sports. We, uh, we leave no stone unturned. Uh, we've got a ton of stories to get to, uh, and uh, it's endlessly fascinating, as uh, this week hopefully will be uh, especially for you baseball fans and those of the Negro Leagues, uh, the uh, proverbial gift that keeps on giving for this little show, for sure. Uh, so many great stories, so many great teams, so many great players, frankly, a whole ton of them quite unheralded. And that's kind of sort of the uh, the focus uh, of this week's conversation with our guest this week, Stephen Greenis, uh, as we talk about the Hall of Fame uh, relative to the Negro leagues. And, um, and frankly, there's a lot of work to do friends. Uh, there's so many great players, uh, managers, administrators, et cetera, of the Negro leagues that, uh, for whatever reasons are still not part of the hallowed hall. Uh, the pinnacle, uh, not only of baseball, uh, it is said, uh, in its history, uh, but frankly of, of perhaps, of, of all of sports, probably the, uh, quintessential hall of fame, maybe the blueprint, uh, for halls of fame everywhere. Uh, in Cooperstown. Um, we get into a fascinating and, uh, uh, frankly, uh, uh, well-deserved conversation uh, uh, with Stephen about uh, his his new book. It's called Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame, The Case for Inducting 24 Overlooked Ballplayers. It's published by our pals at uh, McFarland. But it's, uh, it's not just 24 players. It's actually uh, a couple of dozen others that uh, are also worthy of merit. Uh, it is a tremendously well-researched 
and uh, a well-written book that uh, makes the case not only for these individuals, uh, as we'll get into a few of them in our conversation, uh, but also just the general uh, issue of uh, Negro Leagues uh, in general not being fully accorded uh, their due, if you will, in uh, baseball's highest uh, shrine. Uh, uh, there's no doubt there's uh, some debate, of course, about various players and the the lack of statistics and uh, the relative ragtagness, or at least some of the, some of the structure of Negro League Baseball, certainly not all of it, uh, and, but all kinds of excuses, frankly, in politics uh, around perhaps why uh, Negro League inhabitants uh, still to this day have not sort of gotten their equal due, I would argue. And you could make the case that this year, 2020, uh, being, uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons, right? Uh, almost an exquisite time, uh, to not only address this issue, but perhaps to, uh, once and for all sort of, uh, uh you know, make things, uh, right and, uh, and more regular and more, um, uh, structured, shall we say, in terms of how to not only, uh, include, uh, more, uh, Negro league, uh, players and managers and, and administrators, but creating a more of a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a regular and understood structure uh, to uh, uh, evaluate and to uh, to bring them into inclusion. Um, it, it's a very interesting conversation. The book is fascinating for sure. Uh, that clip uh, that you just heard at the beginning here, though, really does set the tone and uh, is actually kind of almost the starting point uh, for our conversation with Stephen in a few moments. Um, that was Ted Williams uh, interviewed by uh, Bob Costas for his uh, uh you know, a tremendous show uh, and frankly underrated. Uh, it was called Later uh, with Bob Costas. It was a half hour show that uh, uh, picked up where uh, the late night with David Letterman show left off. Uh, if you were on the East Coast like I was as a kid, uh, that meant uh, 1.35 a.m. to 2.05 a.m. if you were still up. Uh, but you were generally well rewarded with fascinating and, and, and excellently researched conversation. And Costas is a good conversationalist for sure. And an interviewer. Uh, and this was part of a two-parter, uh, with, uh, with Ted Williams. Uh, this was June 14th, 1993 to be exact. Uh, we think it was, this is the first part of that two-parter. Um, and uh, Williams is uh, referring to, uh, not only his, uh, his adamant stance, uh, for much of his life, certainly after, as a player, for sure, but certainly after it, too, when he had more of a, a megaphone uh, to sort of uh, make this cause about the uh, the lack of inclusion of some of the greatest players who ever played the game just happened to be black, happened to just happen to play in the Negro Leagues, right? Not their fault, uh, not uh, uh, through no uh, issues of their own, were some of the best players, not only of, the, of their time and in the Negro Leagues, but of all time and of baseball generally. Um, Williams is referring to his Hall of Fame induction speech in 1966, where he specifically and relatively boldly uh, called out the Hall of Fame for not uh, including more of the, shall we call them, not so obvious players from the Negro Leagues era. I mean, Jackie Robinson is obvious, right? And he played for a year or two in the in the Negro Leagues himself and Satchel Paige, obvious. But the, as we talked about with our, our pal Don Rogerson a few weeks back, um, a lot of players and a lot of 
folks around the game, administrators and managers and and others uh, who broadcasters, even frankly, um, uh, in certain circles, uh, writers, you could make the argument too, for sure, um, that have been overlooked. Uh, and we'll get into our conversation, not only of some of the people and the players and the, some of the names that have been overlooked and the cause, uh, the causes for perhaps their inclusion in the Hall of Fame, um, but also, uh, frankly, the, shall we say, inelegant and prickly uh, history of how the Hall of Fame has, or, or frankly hasn't, uh, warmly and equally embraced uh, the Negro Leagues, uh, even still to this day. Yeah, some things have happened since uh, since Ted Williams's speech in, in 66, uh, and a number of different efforts have been made, some of them noble, uh, some of them uh, worthy, um, but frankly, some of them also kind of still smacking of tokenism, if you really think about it. Uh, and and as uh, as our conversation with Stephen uh, Greenis will we'll, we'll get into, uh, there is just a wealth of of people uh, that deserve uh, a structured uh, and meticulous uh, evaluation uh, to be fully included into the, into the Hall of Fame. And we'll get into some of those names, some of those situations, but we also get into the the, the prelude of that, which is why the Hall of Fame hasn't been, shall we say, a bit more progressive and a bit more um, uh, eager, shall we say, to more warmly and equally embrace uh, those of the Negro Leagues. Yeah, I think things have been are getting a little bit a little bit better. But you know, again, I think again in this moment in time, uh, it's uh, it's timely to have this conversation uh, and get really into the specifics. And yeah, this is a little bit of of saber nerdism and 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 we debate statistics and all that kind of stuff. But those are just sideshows to the bigger issue of. Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame. That's the topic of our conversation this week with Stephen Greenis. Uh, it is multifaceted and interesting, uh, to say the least. Um, before we get there, we want to, uh, of course, encourage you to partake uh, of the wares of at least one of our sponsors. And this week, let's spin the dial to our pals at 503 Sports. 503-sports.com, the king of throwbacks. It's Dustin Alameda and his pals in Portland, Oregon. And um, of course, uh, it uh, neatly fits in, uh, into th- this week's topic. Um, uh, Dustin and his uh, friends have uh, uh, refreshed the site even more and added more inventory. And there is a great and now expanded section devoted to uh, the Negro Leagues. And yes, there were a number of major leagues and certainly there were a bunch of minor leagues, too, that sort of were in the un- under the umbrella of the Negro Leagues. But, you know, we're talking about, say, the Negro National League or the Negro American League. Uh, the the one year wonder that was the East West League, uh, even the Eastern Colored League, um, et cetera. There are a handful of uh, other uh, n- major leagues uh, under the uh, the the rubric, I guess, of 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 the Negro Leagues, and and a lot of them uh, brought some great teams into the mix, uh, and the, a lot of those are are uh, lovingly uh, remembered in in ball caps and in customized jerseys. Uh, and even in t-shirt form at 503sports. That's 503-sports.com. And we're talking about some of the greatest names uh, in in the Negro Leagues and in baseball history, the Kansas City Monarchs, the Birmingham Black Barons, the Indianapolis Clowns, who we hope to do a specific episode on uh, in the near future, the the Homestead Grays, of course, Um, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the Detroit Stars, 
on and on and on. These are amazing. The Baltimore Black Sox, they are fitted hats. There are customized jerseys. There are T-shirts. They're all there for you uh, and more. A great selection, a great collection, and more to come, I'm certain, uh, at 503-sports.com. And of course, when you find something that you like, please, indeed, use the promo code that we've got for you there. That's SEATS. The promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. So please, the holidays are, believe it or not, virtually around the corner. What a great opportunity to get your orders in now, ensure that they get delivered, uh, you know, pad in that time for all the the shipping that's uh, going to be delayed. Uh, and uh, indeed, get yourself and your friends and your your relatives, your all those uh, in your life who are big baseball fans and or Negro League fans, a great opportunity and a great excuse. 503 Sports, again, that's 503-sports.com. And uh, use that promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases, not just the great Negro League collection, but all the great stuff in the realm of forgotten sports. And we thank Dustin for his support of the show, and we thank you for your listening to the show this week. Here's our conversation coming right up. Here's Stephen Greenis and me talking about the Negro Leagues and the Hall of Fame. Who should be in? Who's been forgotten? And uh, what can we do to rectify it? And uh, here's our chat. Please enjoy. To help our audience uh, better understand sort of uh, the framing of all this, and, and where do you come to the the Negro Leagues generally anyway, just as a, as a, uh, from your interest and, and your background? You're, you're not a professional baseball person per se. Uh, why don't you give our audience a bit of a sense of how you got hooked on baseball in the first place and the Negro League story uh, specifically? Well, the first game I ever attended, and I say this in my book, was, was coincidentally Don Larson's perfect game. Which I, I think is seven years old. right there is fascinating, right? If that doesn't send a signal to anybody, I mean, nothing will, right? That's right. I still have the ticket stub from that game, believe it or not. But it's, um, you know, I, I grew up in the New York metropolitan area. So baseball was our second religion in the 1950s. And I've, I've been hooked ever since. You know, I was the kind of person who collected baseball cards meticulously you know, I kept them in good condition, and I'm one of the few people whose mother never threw away his collection. I still have my cards <laughs> from the late 50s and early 60s. Now, but your, your, your dad was a Yankee fan, right? And that wasn't necessarily your story growing up uh, as you went, 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 went around, right? That's correct. I, 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 I was a bit of a contrarian, so I adopted the New York Giants and Willie Mays as my team and favorite player. And I stayed with them for about 10 years when they went to the West Coast. But then, you know, I, I came back because I'm still a New Yorker. Well, all right. But the Giants, right, of all the three teams at that time, uh, you could argue were probably the, the third of the three maybe uh, worthy of being chosen, I guess, for your fandom, no? I think that's true. A neighbor had, took, had, had taken me to a Giant game, and for whatever reason, I just became attached. So, all right. Well, then how does that manifest then into – I mean, obviously, you're going to games and, and you sort of you're becoming aware of sort of the the dynamics, I guess, of the three teams and then ultimately one team or at least for a period of time. Uh, how does it sort of manifest into just more than going to games on an occasion and saving a few programs and some ticket stubs? Yeah, as I as I grew older, I really um, developed an interest in statistics and the history of baseball. And I was particularly interested in Jackie Robinson and the integration of baseball. 
And I came to realize that, you know, Jackie Robinson had to come from somewhere. He didn't materialize out of the air. And as I studied the Negro Leagues, particularly after Robert Peterson's book in, in the early 70s, Only the Ball Was White, I began to see that there were many Jackie Robinsons. You know, Robinson was just the tip of the iceberg. And as I studied it more and more, I, I began to feel that these men really were short, were short-sighted, were short-changed by the Hall of Fame, which was another interest of mine in terms of, you know, who they admitted and how they were admitted. Yeah, well, no, no doubt. I've got a copy of, uh, of Peterson's book right here. And we had uh, Don Rogerson on uh, a couple of weeks back who arguably wrote sort of the uh, the second, I have already argued, this uh, seminal sort of uh, uh, entry level, I guess, introduction into the Negro Leagues and in particular the plight of the players, right? And uh, indeed, uh, you know, it was uh, interesting is the wrong word, right? But a, uh, a, a an existence professionally as well as uh, just uh, societally, right? Um, uh, a an interesting and curious time in in the sport of baseball where you had sort of this uh, this parallel sort of world, and and I think really what it brings up uh, is not just the Jackie Robinson story, right? Important and and seminal as it was, right? For various reasons. In some respects, almost like the tip of the iceberg, because for every Jackie Robinson and, and, and other players to, that followed uh, with that, that, that barrier being broken, um, you had just a, a wellspring of talent uh, that, you know, I think upon the decades as they pile on, uh, becomes a very interesting conversation around quality of play, professionalism, uh, not only and their stories, but also their their qualifications, so to speak, as as being equal, if not superior, to their white organized baseball counterparts. I think that's very true. You know, the, the Negro Leagues, however you define them, and I define them very liberally in my book, go back to 1878, and they run right through 1949. Um, veteran catcher Joe Green of the Negro Leagues always said the Negro Leagues were the real major leagues. And he believed it strongly because he had played in many barnstorming games where they played against white major leaguers. Um, I, I really believe that these guys were, were great, great players and that their time, if they had been given a chance, they really would have stood out. I mean, imagine, for example, the NFL or the NBA without African-Americans, and you have a snapshot of what was going on at the time. There was tremendous talent and probably in many ways superior to the talent in a lot of white Major League Baseball at the time. All right. So how do you back into this story growing up watching, you know, the top tier and arguably some of the top teams in Major League Baseball, quote unquote? Uh, I, I doubt you uh, took in or, or were alive or around or when it was vibrant. Uh, you go. You actually went to any of the Negro League games. But by the way, uh, many in the same very stadiums that uh, that you were probably going to games to, right? Um, how do you how do you backtrack, I guess, into this story, and and then try to go deeper into it? Well, it's, you know, one of the things I really feel I missed in my life was the chance to attend some Negro League games. I was far too young because the, the truth is the Negro Leagues, as a, as a really vibrant, high-end organization, were over by 1950. Because once Jackie Robinson entered the major leagues, 
even African Americans lost interest in the Negro Leagues. And after that, they were, you know, maybe low minor league baseball at best, and they faded out by the early 60s. But, you know, as I did my research, some facts really jumped out at me. For example, you, you know that the National League integrated before the American League. Um, are you aware that nine of the 11 MVPs in the National League between 1947 and 1959 were former major or former Negro leaguers. Say that's interesting. I mean, that's a stunning fact. Well, it's not only stunning; it's 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 a uh, it, it, it's, it's almost as positive as to the quality of the Negro leagues. Yeah, and so it also brings up the question: is like you know, I, we can sort of get into some of that here now if you want, but like the proverbial what took so long, right? This, this, this Just taking all the other sort of s distracting issues aside, just from a pure talent perspective, right? It, it just, just seems, I guess, through the frame of history, so illogical. Well, it's, racism is illogical. And that was clearly the answer. I mean, many teams thought about integrating earlier in 1947. I think in 1943, the Pittsburgh Pirates had a tryout scheduled with three of the top players in the Negro Leagues. And at the last minute, the Pirates lost their nerve and backed out. There were chances, but nobody really had the guts to go through with this until, you know, the Dodgers did it in 1947. So from your perspective then, so, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that, you know, there, there were differing levels of uh, of Negro League play, right, over that period of time that you just discussed, right? And there's no there's no doubt that uh, some of the top tier of those, right, whether it be the Negro National League or the Negro American League, even uh, the East-West League for a year or two, I mean, we can get into sort of the, I guess the, uh, there's almost a, 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 um, a grading, if you will, of certain uh, leagues within sort of this bigger umbrella of the Negro Leagues, but I guess the question in there somewhere is, as you're getting in, in, involved in sort of investigating this stuff further, where where do you focus most of your energies to kind of even get to where the best players and the and the best teams were sort of sitting? It probably wasn't all that obvious, or may, or was it? Well, you know, I, I think the first thing you need to do is to understand that the Negro Leagues were not an exact equivalent to the American and National League. They operated differently. I view them as a multiverse, that they had many levels of high-level play. You know, not only did they have the official Negro Leagues operating in the United States, the ones you've just mentioned, you know, Negro National League, the Negro American League, the Negro Southern League for one year. You know, they were basically any high-level league that allowed dark-skinned players to play baseball. And they, were op they operated not only in the United States, but throughout the Caribbean. Uh, Cuban ball was played at a very high level um, during the 20s, 30s. Um, there were South American winter leagues that the, that the players gravitated to. There were barnstorming teams that were some of the greatest teams of all time that operated independent of any league. But they played black and white teams at all levels. This was also a time in America when there were strong industrial and local league teams that were all over the place. There was the California Winter League, which integrated in the 1920s and allowed Negro League teams to play as a unit, not as a part of other teams, but as a unit. And in the California Winter League, black teams won 60% of the games they played 
and they won 13 of the 16 pennants between 1924 and 1939. There were also elite military teams who, you know, prior to 1920 were some of the greatest black ball players were part of those teams. They went throughout the country playing independent teams and beating everybody. So the, the Negro Leagues were all of these things, and there were great players at all of these levels. Yeah, maybe you can also get a, uh, describe a little bit about the the sort of, uh, I, I, I hesitate to use the word infrastructure, right? Because I think in, in some cases, I mean, obviously, Rube Foster, very, very integral in, in getting sort of, I guess, uh, as close to the a mimicking of organized baseball in terms of structure and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. But, but you're hinting at that there's also in this multiverse you're describing. You know, uh, some things that are, are not necessarily as set in stone or regimented or, uh, you know, uh, great attention to detail statistics, for example, right, uh, which we'll stumble into as, as, a, as a particular thorny issue as, as the years hold on. A, a bit of a sense of sort of the uh, officialness, I guess, of, of Negro League Baseball. I guess there were, there were branches of it that were absolutely uh, that, but, but clearly others that were not necessarily. Right. You know, the, the official Negro League Baseball started by, was started by Rube Foster in 1920. And he start, founded the Negro National League, which ran through about 1931 and then fell apart. Then there was the East-West League that operated, as you pointed out, for one year. And then a guy named Gus Greenling, Gus Greenlee, who was a uh, bootlegger and a um, numbers runner from Pittsburgh, created the Negro National League, which operated from 1933 to 1948. And there was also a, a Negro American League that started in 1937 and ran through the end of Negro League history in about 1960. But, you know, as I pointed out, even these official leagues, as they were operating, usually there were no more than two or three league games per week. And the rest of the week was filled up with independent play against independent teams. And usually at a fairly decent level. And that was really the Negro League world. It was different than the American and the National League world. Um, there was also some crossover. You know, after the end of the season, there was significant barnstorming between, you know, white major leaguers and Negro League teams because that's what the public wanted to see. And those, those Negro League teams won, you know, historians differ by exactly what the percentage was, but Negro League teams won over 50% of those games. And you could say, oh, hey, they were exhibition games. Nobody really cared. But that you wouldn't understand what was really going on. You know, the African-Americans were trying to win. They wanted to make a point. And the white major leaguers didn't want to be shown up. Yeah, and it's almost like a double—it's almost like a double-edged sword, right? Because it's uh, in, in a in a very uh, intriguing way, right? Uh, and and we've we've talked on a number of different episodes about sort of the businessmen behind, or in case of uh, of a manly businesswomen behind, uh, you know, the the business, if you will, of this uh, of the existence of the African American pursuit of baseball, right? There is this sort of the official league kind of play thing, but the 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 bigger bucks were probably being made on the side, if you will. Or maybe not on the side, but almost more centrally, it was important to to have the barnstorming and the competitive against the the the, the white teams or whatever, because it generated revenue and or was arguably more entertaining, right? It was more of a show, more of an attraction uh, for people to come and, and pay top or greater dollar for. Um, but but the, the 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 other side of that coin, though, right, is 
perhaps where we skate into uh, some of the framing of, of, of your book and the thesis behind it, right, is it didn't help in the realm of, I guess you could call it statistics, right? And, and maybe arguably helped muddy the waters when it comes to, uh, through an historical lens, the, the relative quality and assessment of these players, uh, their capabilities, uh, and their, frankly, their qualifications, quote unquote, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, legendary status in, in something like a Hall of Fame. Well, I think what you say is true. And in fact, the fact that there were not statistics available for many, many years was used by the Hall of Fame as a as a way of saying, well, we really can't assess these guys, so we can't really, you know, put them in the Hall of Fame. And the veterans committees, when they looked at the, you know, the players initially, they would say the same thing. We don't have statistics. How could you, you know, ask us to make a decision? And of course, you know, my point was that the statistics in the official Negro League games are only part of the important, you know, Negro League world. Now, Major League Baseball did something in, in uh, 2005, which I thought was very good, which was they they spent $250,000 having, you know, Negro League historians put together as many official statistics as they could from 1920 through 1947. And then they used that you know, for the committee of 2006 to review Negro Leaguers, and that committee put 20, 17 new Negro Leaguers into the Hall of Fame. So, all right, so that this, uh, this unwraps uh, uh, a few other sort of tributaries, I guess, uh, to mix a metaphor, right? So, number one, um, this uh, gets into uh, how these statistics were sort of kept, so to speak, right? Um I remember our conversation with Don Rogerson a couple of weeks back. Uh, his a lot of his sourcing, uh, besides being able to sort of interview, and this is back in 1980 or so, uh, the original uh, uh, imprint of his of his book, his first book. The uh, the uh, besides original uh, interviews with with actual players and 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 personnel, there was also sort of this uh, very rich, uh, but uh, fairly narrow in terms of number. Uh, African-American press, right? The Amsterdam News, for example, in New York. You know, the, the very... In those, these it's are per courier. Yeah, right, exactly, right? So the, these, are, these are arguably the, the newspapers of record to the extent that they existed in, in most of these cities uh, for basically this information, these statistics, to the extent that they were kept. Right. The, the, and the historians, when they put those records together in 2005, they went right to the source material, all the newspapers, and they looked up everything they could find. But again, the truth is that not every team reported all of these statistics to the paper on a regular basis. And some of the st statistics were wrong. And a lot of the statistics were partial. You know, they didn't have things like stolen bases and defensive records. So they, they are what they are. And they will always be partial statistics. But I think there's enough out there now in terms of the overall basis of statistical data where one can really look at it all together and say, this guy belongs in the Hall of Fame. And the reason I wrote my book is I feel that the 35 men who are in now, 34 men and one woman, are not enough. That there's some really great players who measure up and should be in the Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame should reopen their process in a more open way. 
All right, I want to I want to get into that sort of um, checkered sort of history uh, that that leads up to your framing and stuff in a second. But it almost feels to me like, and obviously I'm, you know, I'm not near, I'm not the saber guy. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, this is sort of more of a an expansive exploration and personal journey, so to speak, I guess, versus uh, an in-depth sort of uh, baseball uh, statistician kind of approach. But it almost feels to me, if I could really oversimplify some of this, that uh, in some respects, because of the, shall we say, lack of uniformity around statistics and uh, game coverage and, 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 and all that other stuff, right? It almost feels like it's uh, almost uh, through the, through the historical lens, almost a, a second version of discrimination in some respects when it comes to the equation of the statistics and the quality of the players when it's thought about in the grand scheme of baseball, right? It's almost like a, another knock against the stories and the, and the, the justification, I guess, of, of some of these players and, and management. Well, I think you're getting very close to the truth because the statement that, well, we don't have statistics, so we can't assess these guys is basically, you know, racism by not understanding how the Negro Leagues operated. You know, they did not operate, you know, as formal leagues playing seven games a day, seven, you know, days a week in league games. They operated very differently. And there are other things you can look at. There are enough statistics where you can make judgments as to the quality of players. You know, there's a there's a site online now called Seamheads where they've gathered every statistic they can concerning all these Negro leaguers. And it's very extensive. It gives you a, a real solid basis for comparing these players to each other and also to major league players. They have, a, they have something called similarity scores where they match Negro league players up with major league players based upon their comparative statistics. And some of those, you know, comparisons are amazing. You know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about players later on. I can tell you about some of those. Yeah, sure. And we've talked about, obviously, some of those that are already in, like the Oscar Charlestons of the world, right? In some circles, right, argue, uh, argued to be, you know, one of the best baseball players in his position uh, of of all versus not just within the Negro Leagues, right? But I, I guess what before we get into that is, um, and this is a naive question, and again, I'm not a statistician, but... I almost wonder if there's a, maybe you could tell me if there is such a thing or a methodology, is there almost like a a need for and or an existence of, uh, for lack of a better term, a qualitative quotient, so to speak, right? Because you're mentioning all of these barnstorming games, and, and clearly there are, there are going to be accounts and other historical threads out there beyond statistics of a game that many might have treated as an exhibition anyway. But to deny that 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 play couldn't or shouldn't be part of maybe the overall tableau of a player's existence and or performance. I just wonder if there's any mechanism that could be agreed upon that could sort of layer in some of that, shall we say, non-officialness of their play in those exhibitions and whatnot, since it was such a big part of the Negro League experience. There's actually a split between Negro historians and how to deal with that. Um, some, like historian John Hallway, say he, he wants to count every statistic of every top-level game he could find. And his, his statement was, if Josh Gibson could hit a home run, I'm going to count it. Other, you know, Negro League historians say, let's stick with this, you know, with the official league games, because that, that shows us, you know, the, the most comparative basis for one player to the other. 
Um, and people look at it differently. Um, my feeling is that you've got to look at all the statistics that are out there, regardless of the forum. I mean, some of these leagues, like the Cuban leagues, very high-level ball, and those statistics are available. The um, California Winter League, these players were playing against major leaguers and top minor leaguers. I think that's very valuable da data, and I think everything should be looked at. All right, well, describe to me, as you as you delve deeper into all of this, maybe you can frame for the audience, um, for those especially not sort of knee-deep in baseball statistics and history and all that kind of stuff, uh, the um, somewhat tenuous relationship, I guess, between that of the supposedly ultimate shrine of baseball history, that being the Hall of Fame, and the understanding of the Negro Leagues, the inclusion thereof, um, and and maybe some of the timing elements. I, one of the things that Don Rogerson and I talked about a couple of weeks back was, um, you know, obviously with uh, the Peterson book and his book, uh, those those even preceded what was probably the supernova, I guess, of um, uh, of mainstream understanding of the Negro Leagues, which was the uh, baseball documentary series by Ken Burns, right? That's opened up a lot of doors um, and or re-invented, uh, uh, I guess, the the or, or brought back, I guess, the sort of languishing history uh, or maybe ignored history of what the Negro Leagues was, right? Um, I, I guess the, the question is, in your mind, based on what you've been able to discern, where sort of, how did this sort of admission and or recognition and or, uh, I want to call it correction, but a process by which the Hall of Fame started to recognize that they were behind the times, shall we say, in terms of understanding and or incorporating Negro League players and, and administration? It's actually a very interesting story. And it kicks off back in 1966 when Ted Williams was making his induction speech at the Hall of Fame. And he used the speech as a basis for arguing loudly and vociferously for the admission of Negro Leaguers. And you kind of say, well, why Ted Williams? And there were a couple of reasons, I think, when you, when you really study the record. Um, first of all, Ted Williams, when he was 12 years old, once saw Satchel Paige pitch a game in San Diego. And Paige pitched a one-hitter and Williams discerned that the one hit he gave up, he gave up intentionally to the weakest hitter on the other team. And that really impressed him. You know, when he became a major leaguer himself in the late 30s, he would hear stories about how Josh Gibson, you know, smashed a home run here, he hit a home run there, and he was also impressed by that. And there's, there's one other story that when he faced Satchel Paige himself, when Page started pitching for the Indians in the late 40s and early 50s, um, he noticed, because he was a very observant hitter, that every time Satchel Page threw a curveball, he would twist his, his um, wrist at the top of, the, of his motion. And, you know, he got up to the bat, and they had two strikes on him. He saw Page twist his wrist, and then a fastball flew by him for strike three. And the next day, he was at the batting cage, and Paige walked over to him and whispered, you, better know, you should know better than to guess with old Satch. But I think, you know, the real reason that Williams did what he did was people don't understand that he was of Mexican heritage. It was not something he publicized, but it was the fact. And I think he felt like an outsider as well. 
and he felt it was time to stand up for other outsiders. And that's why he did what he did. Um, that translated into a lot of newspaper writers agitating for the admission of Negro Leaguers to the Hall of Fame. Now, the Hall of Fame was very reluctant. Paul Kerr, who was the president at the time, was, was, was very, um, he really wasn't that interested. But Bowie Kuhn insisted on having a meeting with him. This was about 1971. And he convinced Kerr that it would be a good thing to set up a plaque for Negro Leaguers, not where the main plaques were, but down in the hallway in a separate section. And, you know, Kerr, based upon that, he said, okay, you guys can admit Negro Leaguers, but not as, as full, you know, Hall of Famers, but down in the hallway. So they put this committee together of about 10 guys, and the first person they elected was Satchel Page. And when they elected him, as I said, he wasn't supposed to be a full member of the Hall of Fame. Well, the public went crazy. They sent all kinds of letters, which are in the archives of the Hall of Fame. I've read them. They were extraordinary, very, very tough letters saying, you know, you treated him as a second-class citizen during his life, and now you're putting him in a second-class section of the Hall of Fame. And in fact, when Page flew to New York for his press conference after he had been designated the first recipient, the first Negro League recipient, he didn't know that full membership awaited him. And they told him when he got into the press conference. And so that was the story of the first admission. Um, that committee then admitted, uh, they were allowed the first year to admit one person, then they were told you can only admit two a year, and they got up to nine. And then the, the powers that be at the Hall of Fame said, okay, I think that's enough. That's enough. And Monty Irvin, who was the chair of the committee, was also an employee of Major League Baseball, knew enough to back off. But he also knew there are a lot more men who were qualified than the nine they had admitted. So then the Hall of Fame turned over the job of, of electing Negro Leaguers to their Veterans Committee for the next 16 years. And I'm sorry, now, this, veterans, this is about, this go is ahead. about what time, uh, circa what? Uh, it was 1978 to 1994, Got the it. Veterans okay, so Committee. So the, the, the 70s largely was sort of this arguably now beginning phase, but but you're, you're it's now shifting into another gear here in the late 70s. Right. And so you can imagine there are 18 uh, former players on the Veterans Committee. They put two Negro Leaguers on there among the 18. You know, what incentive did these guys who didn't know about the Negro Leagues have to elect, you know, spend 75% of their votes on Negro Leaguers? They elected two people over 16 years one of whom was Rube Foster, who was probably one of the most important figures in Negro League history. So then the Hall of Fame realized this is not working. So they basically gave the Veterans Committee an eight-man ballot and said, you, you're allowed, you have to put in one person a year for the next seven years. And so they elected one person a year. They put Buck O'Neill in the committee, and he would tell the other veterans who should be elected. And then about 2001, they said, okay, our ballot's almost out. That's the end of it. But you describe, was, you describe that, in your, I'm sorry, you, you describe that in your book as almost, as a, essentially as, like almost as a quota type system, yeah? Well, it was a quota. You know, they were told one person you put in, no more, no less. Just, you know, get this done. And they were basically told who to vote for. 
because they were given a very short ballot. And, you know, the way I look at it is the, the hall was, was dragged, kicking and screaming into admitting Negro League members. There was never this type of open voting, which was allowed for, you know, the white major leaguers. So finally, in 2005, the Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball authorized this study, which I, which I mentioned before, where they spent $250,000 putting official statistics together for the period 1920 to 1948. They brought a historian's committee together, 12 people. They said 75% vote, you get in. They gave them 35-name ballot, which had been pre-cleared by the Hall of Fame. And they said, you can put in as many as you want from the 35. But again, you know, I interviewed committee members and they felt there was an implied, you know, obligation not to go too crazy. In effect, I think it's very impressive that they, you know, elected 17 people out of the 35. But, you know, as I say in my book, I think, you know, there was a good case for almost all 35 to be in. There were very, very strong players. There's never been a situation where there was an open and fair ballot over a period of time where people could, you know, build a consensus the way they do when the baseball writers elect members to the Hall of Fame. So so where and we'll get into some of those overlooked players finally in a moment. But but where does it sort of stand today? Is it uh, I know that there's still some some rumblings of trying to make this even more of a, shall we say, a more mainstream inclusionary process? Well, right now, the the Hall of Fame has something called era committees. And, you know, initially when they we create they created these era committees, they created one committee, which would be for the period 1871 to 1949 for overlooked players. And the philosophy of that committee was we already have too many Hall of Famers from that era. We got to focus more on post 1949 players. And originally, that, that era committee was going to be limited to major league players. The public went a little crazy. And so they said, okay, Negro Leaguers can go into the you know, early baseball committee, and they can be considered by that committee. The problem is that committee, unlike the other committees, meets only once every 10 years and can only elect four people from a 10-person ballot. So effectively, you know, the Negro Leaguers are being given a quota again. It's unlikely that more than one or two would ever get in every 10 years. Yeah, but you know, that, the, the, sorry, but that also said, right, it's also it's, it's also comparing apples and oranges, so to speak, right? Because you've got yeah, a, a, a conversation about a dead era, a dead ball era player, you know, versus the, a completely different dynamic in that of the Negro Leagues, which itself should be it. It seems incongruous, right, when you're talking about like, you know, turn of the century versus some very dynamic uh, uh, African-American baseball play in the 30s, you know? Exactly right. I mean, the last person admitted by the early era committee, I think, was umpire Hank O'Day. I mean, really. Hank O'Day, compared to some of the players that, you know, still, you know, are out there in the Negro Leagues, it's, um, it's to me, the only fair solution is to create a new era committee which can look at the Negro Leagues as a whole, you know, use the same 10-person ballot. You can, can't elect more than four people. All the other air committees meet every five years. I think the Negro Leagues, which have not been picked over, should be able to, the, that air committee should meet every five years. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And it's it's just, you know, again, from an outsider's perspective, the politics and or just sort of the, you know, it it, it still seems so odd that that it's still not sort of, I guess, fully sort of figured out. Well, why don't we get into your framing, right, of so you're you're you've taken uh, great pains and this this book by the way is is meticulously laid out and it's it really makes the case for a whole bunch of these players uh as to their worthiness shall we say for inclusion in the Hall of Fame but obviously uh as these things go right uh you frame it up uh and obviously make the case in some uh, sort of uh, specific logic, and maybe you want to give our audience a, a little bit of a, a general understanding of how you sort of synthesized uh, and, and came across uh, these players through your own sort of uh, system. Well, I am a lawyer, so I, you know, okay. my history is writing briefs. We won't hold that against you. Maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But basically what I did was I looked at all of the available statistics, and there are a lot of statistics out there. Most of them are online if you really look for them. I also went back and I looked at player polls because a lot of the great Negro leaguers would list their all-time teams. And I thought that was of great significance. Um, Other historians have, you know, picked MVPs and all-stars for every year, even though that wasn't necessarily happening in the Negro leagues at the time. And those picks were very significant to me because those are the same type of picks that, you know, major league people look at when they elect people to the Hall of Fame. Um, That and also another thing that was very important to me was championship teams. You know, you want to pick players who were winners, who were part of a team that won either, you know, a league pennant or a Negro League World Series, because those are players who are very important. And I think once you do that, a certain consensus developed that there were certain players who were clearly, you know, elite players and every much the equivalent of major Hall of Famers. I'm not talking, you know, the guys who don't belong there, you know, like Lloyd Wayner, who had 26 home runs in his lifetime, but it's in the Hall of Fame. I'm talking about the top people. Before we go to the, some, some of the names, what teams consistently rose to the top? Because we certainly do know that there was a lot of, uh, I say, player migration uh, to some of the better teams, and as the barnstorming values uh, grew and stuff. But some of them are probably fairly well-known names, but maybe some other team names not so. Yeah, the well, I focus more on players than teams, but there were some great, great teams throughout history. The the Homestead Grays were one of the best Negro League teams. I would argue that the 1931 Homestead Grays may have been not only the greatest Negro League team, but maybe the greatest baseball team of all time. They had six Hall of Famers in that team and a Hall of Fame owner. They had Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, Judd Wilson at third, pitcher Smokey Joe Williams, Willie Foster, and Satchel Page. I mean, they were an extraordinary team. And they also had George Tubby Scales, who's one of the guys I argue should be in the Hall of Fame based upon, you know, available statistics. That team uh, had a record in, in 1931 of 143 wins, 29 losses, and two ties. Just an extraordinary team. Well, and probably a few barnstorming games in between all of that, too, probably. 
Absolutely. League games were only three, two or three games a week. The rest of it was barnstorming. Um, the Pittsburgh Crawfords of 1935, an amazing team, also with five Hall of Famers in the lineup, a team that you know played at the 785 winning percentage, defeated the New York Cubans in the World Series. Um, you know, these were teams, you know, as you say, players did jump from team to team because the contracts, frankly, were not well respected. In a way, it seemed more like, you know, modern free agencies where players would just go where the, where the dollars were greater. And, you know, the, the owners really couldn't do anything about it. Satchel Page was famous for that, jumping from team to team, even in midseason. What... Um... What uh, players uh, from all of that uh, immediately stand out as being gross uh, injustices uh, in your mind? You're sort of like your handful of like top folks that like just for whatever reason should be in without any any question. Well, one of my favorites is Dick Cannonball Redding. You know, he pitched from 1911 to 1938. He was a six foot four fastball pitcher in the dead ball era. Um, only Smokey Joe Williams and Willie Foster had more wins than him in Negro League history. Only Satchel Page and Joe Williams had more strikeouts than him in Negro League history. He's just, including, you know, the type of semi-pro teams they would face on a regular basis. Um, the, the Center for Negro League Baseball Research has found 346 wins for this guy. And he pitched at a 2.55 ERA. In 1911, he had 17 straight wins for the Philadelphia Giants and the New York Lions, New York Lincoln Giants. Um, over the course of his career, he completed 91% of the games he started. 22% of his games were shutouts. Um, he's been named the hypothetical Cy Young Award winner by historians six different years. Um, there was one exhibition game where he struck out Babe Ruth on nine consecutive pitches. Yeah, you you also you also mentioned in his uh, in the in the write up here that he um, was uh, particularly effective against uh, various major league uh, opposition too, right? Well, obviously not for you know not statistically uh, arguably exhibition oriented, but you know uh, any chance it seems that he had against the quote unquote white competition, he seemed to take and run with. Absolutely. You know, an interesting side light about him was the Yankees hired him when Lou Gehrig was at Columbia to pitch to Lou Gehrig. And I think, you know, facing real major league pitching is what, have, what must have helped Lou Gehrig become who he was. But of course, you know, these exhibition games against white teams, sometimes they had other factors as well. In 1927, there was a story about the cannonball Reading where he was facing um, Babe Ruth's All-Stars in the postseason, And, you know, the um, promoter came up to him and said, you know, everyone's here to see Babe Ruth hit home runs. And Redding said, okay, gotcha, right down the pike. And that day, Babe Ruth hit three monster home runs off Redding. And, you know, the fans went home happy and Redding and Ruth went home richer. But um, he, he's, I think he's the best American pitcher other than the steroids affected guys like Roger Clemens who's eligible for the Hall of Fame, but not in. I can't understand why he's not in. Who else can you not understand just uh, uh, is not in? And then, and then I want to get sort of the other side of the equation of, you know, people that you discovered that that are maybe a little quirky and maybe not on people's radars that, that you you 
specifically found and discovered and, and, and truly are, are raising the flag for? Okay. Um, let me talk to you about Charlie Smith. I played from 1925 to 1931. The players called him Chino. Um, this guy was the Negro League's greatest hitter. He has the highest batting average, Tim, of any player in Major League history, black or white, 388. Um, John Hallway, who counts all games, says he hit 434 against everybody combined. In 1927, he won the batting title, hitting 451. Second in the league at home runs was the league MVP. 1929, he was the MVP again, hit 464. Led the league also on home runs, runs scored, and outfield assists. He was the MVP again in 1930, hit 492. He played in the first game in Yankee Stadium in July of 1930, hit two home runs and a triple and four at-bats. Um, he played five seasons in Cuba winter ball, has the fourth highest batting average in Cuban winter ball history, 335. Um, 1930, he started feeling sick when he was in Cuba, came back to the U.S. and died in 1931 of stomach cancer. Um, I mentioned before that, you know, the site Seamheads has compared major leaguers to Negro leaguers. And they say that the six players in major league history, and we're talking about 20,000 players now who've played major league, white major league ball, the six players who are most similar to Chino Smith are in order. Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Roger Hornsby, Joe DiMaggio, Ty Cobb, and Lou Gehrig. Should be open and close case, right? In that Absolutely. Regard. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not talking about, you know, guys who are, you know, second rate who got passed over. The way the system was run, really great players got missed. Do you think this guy is more important as in baseball history than Hank O'Day? Well, you also, uh, and we'll get into some of the sort of uh, diamonds in the rough, shall we say, in a minute. But but you also you also extend this into not just players, but also other other people related to the game. Like for example, I I was surprised, and again, I'm not as deep into this, uh, you know, as the average Sabre uh, uh, member, right? But to see Gus Greenlee, right, not in in there, given what he contributed to the game. Uh, it, to me is, is, and I'm just, you know, I'm just a layman, if you will, uh, is, is, uh, is quite surprising. I mean, he's one of the Negro League's most dynamic figures. He founded the Negro National League in the early 30s, which was the most successful Negro League of all. He built the first black-owned stadium in 1932, Greenlee Field. He was the first person to install night lights for baseball. Um, he developed and created the 1935 Pittsburgh Crawfords, which are probably one of the two or three best teams in Negro League history. Um, and most important of all, he, he organized and paid the rent for the first East-West All-Star game, which became the calling card for the Negro Leagues. Other than a Joe Lewis fight, that was the biggest social event, sporting event, in African-American, you know, in, in society, people came from all over the country for that game, which was usually played in Comiskey Field in Chicago, and it was a big weekend event. And that was all, you know, Gus Greenlee. I mean, how did this guy not get into the Hall of Fame? I don't understand. 
Yeah, and it's also as a, a, a living in Chicago now, and and have uh, learned quite a bit through uh, my family uh, married family uh, history about the, the baseball in this city. Right, it's also nice to see uh, the great Orestes Mini Minoso uh, in your worthy of further consideration uh, section for third base. Right, uh, there there are so many other. Uh, the one thing that strikes me also too, besides some of these uh, gross omissions, I guess, uh, is um, the, the the some of the names and the nicknames are just they're, 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 they should get <laughs> in extraordinary. Just, they should get in the, on those alone. I mean, any any names or people that that uh, perhaps are uh, shall we say undiscovered or, or, or less uh, uh, known that uh, that you uh, sort of stumbled into and and just absolutely will bang the table to to make their cases too? Absolutely. And some of them have great nicknames. It's Oliver the Ghost Marcel. He was a defensive specialist in 1918 to 1930, best fielding third baseman of the 1920s. Other players regarded him with awe. They called him the Ghost because every night he would disappear and he wouldn't sleep in his bed and he'd show up at the game the next day. Nobody ever knew where he went. Um... He was teamed with Pop Lloyd, Dobie Moore, and Dick Lundy, three shortstops, with different teams as three of the greatest left-side fielding infields in Negro League history. And the guy could hit. You know, he had a lifetime batting average of 305 in the Cuban League. He hit 393 in 1923 to 1924. He was smart and aggressive on the base paths. He was a real winner. Played for five championship teams in the 1920s. Um, the 1952 Courier poll by the Pittsburgh Courier, where they polled, you know, great veterans and executives of the Negro Leagues, named him as the greatest third baseman of all time. Oscar Charleston also thought he was the best third baseman of all time. But unfortunately, he had some other traits, too. He was a real handsome guy. He was vain. He had a very bad temper. He once hit Charleston over the head with a bat. It was it was um, Marcel who was with Dave Brown in a bar when Brown killed a man. Um, he actually left baseball after he got into a fight with another guy who was a great nickname, Frank Weasel Warfield. And Warfield bit off his nose in the fight. And he was so disfigured that he couldn't, you know, take it anymore, and he just left the game. He ended up working as a house painter in Denver and died at age 53. Yeah, some of the, some of these stories too, a lot, uh, you know, are 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 uh, you know are, are are worthy of of at least uh, bringing to the fore, let alone their uh, the background possibly for inclusion into into a Hall of Fame. Well, it's interesting when I spoke to the voter the voters in the um, 19, 2006 election for the Hall of Fame, they indicated that they were really concerned with with designating people who would reflect the Negro League in their best light. So anyone who had a backstory, you know, that was a little bit off color, like the one about Oliver the Ghost Marcel, seemed to have been skipped over. And I don't think that's right. I think, you know, you've got to deal with people based on the merits of their performance on the field and their contribution to the team, not the fact that they may have had a violent end. Well, look, and the, argu- the argument behind that, uh, against that, right, is uh, t- did anybody look at uh, how baseball got started in the – in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the uh, borderline or maybe just fully uh, scoundrel-like uh, qualities of, of some of these or many of these players. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's it just seems incongruous, right? Well, yes. And, and, you know, we have to accept the fact that these these people were living 
you know, a rough life in a rough world. For sure. And, you know, the, they were also great, great ball players. And I think many of these teams, for example, the 1931 Homestead Grays, would have beaten white major league teams and all the white major league teams. These were great teams. So, so how do we fix this, I guess is the best term, but how, do you, how, do, how does this process improve? Obviously, there's now the Negro uh, 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 League uh, Hall of Fame uh, in Kansas City, uh, which, you know, uh, arguably is uh, the center of all things Negro Leagues, uh, which is, I think, tremendous because it, it gives it gives everything uh, a center. But but it also, in some respects, could be perceived as being, you know, a, a tributary that maybe takes away from the, the 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 full inclusion in the quote unquote bigger Hall of Fame or the more mainstream Hall of Fame. Right. I, I guess. How do you sort of see the process and the system evolving, uh, if at all, and perhaps being able to hand out copies of your book and, and use it as a guidepost, perhaps, for, for finally including or at least reopening the, the consideration process for, for a bulk of these players and, and uh, administrators? Well, I think the, the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City is wonderful, but it's a museum. It doesn't really have, you know, a Hall of Fame plaque. It, it's it's a, a place to go and study and really appreciate the Negro Leagues generally. But it's very different than the Hall of Fame. Um, one of the things I ran across in my studies was there was a survey where 70% of Americans said being elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame is the highest honor in American sports. And I think that, that still rings true. And I think these guys are deserving of the highest honor. And that's why I feel strongly that there should be a separate era committee elect, you know, designated by the Hall of Fame for reviewing these guys on a fair basis. I mean, it's still a very high standard to have to secure 75% of the votes of any committee to be elected to the Hall of Fame. Now, I wrote my book for a purpose. I mean, I want, I want this to happen. Um, I've sent copies of my book to all the directors and the president of the Hall of Fame. And I recently got a letter from the president who told me he's going to read my book. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, let's give you the opportunity to promote this book because uh, it's it's uh, it, it is it is so well done. It, it, it's a, it's 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 a, it's it's interesting to read. It, it reads well, but it also is packed full of uh, uh, argumentative uh, uh, background and statistics and rationale. Um, and it's not just the 24 overlooked ballplayers that sort of are in your sort of top tier, but there's also uh, a couple, a dozen folks worthy of consideration. And I think some people, especially people who are baseball fans, would actually recognize some of those names as well. Yeah, I try, I try to deal with many players who, you know, might not have been the best 24, but then again, they might have been. You know, I don't think any two people have ever submitted the identical ballot to the Hall of Fame. For, you know, any in any election, everyone has different opinions. But my point was that there are really some great players out there. And I, you know, I hope people will read this book and, and appreciate that. The book is available, you know, on Amazon now. And it's called Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame by Stephen Greenus. And I would encourage people to take a look at it. What do you think in your heart of hearts happens from here on out for this effort and baseball's still ongoing grappling with the history of the Negro Leagues and, and its memories and 
lauds, lauding. You know, what, what's sad to me is other than the 2005 election, the, the Hall of Fame has really been, you know, reluctant to be aggressive on this issue. I, I think to a certain extent they don't want to offend, you know, the major league players who are in the hall and are an important part of the ceremony every year when they come back. But I think that's silly. You know, when the 17 Negro Leaguers were elected in 2006, nobody said anything negative. Everybody, you know, thought that was great. And I think if they really try to open the process, the public will appreciate it. And I think until they do it, it's really only a partial Hall of Fame. It should be a full Hall of Fame for all people who are entitled to membership. Do you, th- do you think that 17-member class was perceived perhaps as uh, overdue tokenism versus, you know, more systemic uh, recalibration of, of the process? I, I don't know. I, I, I do think that the 17 people who were elected warranted election. My problem is that many more do. And, you know, there's a saying that the Hall of Fame is really reserved for the top 1% of all players. But if you look at the major league players, in fact, 1.5% of the players who've played Major League Baseball are in the Hall of Fame. The Negro League players in the Hall of Fame, even if you added the 24 that I I argue should be in, that would bring the total to 59, that would be 0.7% of the Negro League players. So, you know, statistically, we're nowhere near where we should be in terms of treating these guys equally and fairly because these are great, great players. Well, I'd love to stay in touch and hear how your, I wouldn't call it a crusade per se, but uh, it's, it's, this is clearly, this is, the, uh, this is the evidence, if you will, Your Honor. Uh, I think of... of, of <laughs> I've said that before. Op- well, at least, at least opening the door to uh, a reconsideration, not only of the, of the players and the, and the other folks that you, 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 know, you forcefully and, and uh, uh, in a well-researched way uh, defend and, and, and argue should be in there, but, but also the process, right? It just reveals to me that the, and again, I, I'm not the sort of saber nerd guy, right? But the, the, it seems like the process still hasn't been fully addressed. And it would also seem to me, and now I'm trying to get off the descending my soapbox here, but it would almost seem to me that this is perhaps in, in the last number of decades, right? The, the most exquisite moment in time, given all that's been going on the last year plus in this country for various, from various uh, things, to, to actually address this, and, and it seems like an open door to actually do that. You know, I agree completely. I actually started writing this book three years ago, but, you know, the time is propitious. It's, you know, this is the right time for this type of opening to occur. And I think the Hall of Fame, if it recognizes it, will be lauded for that. Well, look, I, I admire the, uh, the scholarship for this, uh, and I, I highly encourage anybody who considers themselves a baseball fan uh, and just as intrigued in the Negro Leagues, obviously we, we've talked about some of the the books and the media that can sort of get one more uh, knowledgeable and, and more um, understanding of, of the generalities. And, and obviously uh, the museum in Kansas City is certainly a, a wonderful stop when people can travel again. Um, but once you start scratching the surface and you get into some of the uh, the more particulars of this, I mean, you start to recognize that that the Hall of Fame and baseball, organized baseball generally, is probably still a few, if not a, more than a few, steps behind when it comes to 
not only equality, but uh, just the, the reality of understanding the fuller tableau of, of, of the sport, its history, and, and the role that the Negro Leagues and their players and their administrators and managers uh, played. And that's part of the story of baseball, right? Uh, not just as an era, right? But, but ongoing, right? Without it, right? There, you wouldn't have uh, half of perhaps what we have today on all different fronts of baseball. You know, it's it's wonderful to celebrate Jackie Robinson, and he should be celebrated. But there's so much more to the story, and it's it's my you know passion that the story needs to be completed by honoring all the people who were right behind Jackie Robinson and were part of the world he came from. All right, we'll leave it there, and uh, we wish Stephen uh, the best with the book and the case and the cause uh, and the book you should get. It's called Negro Leaguers and the Hall of Fame, the case for inducting 24 overlooked ball players. It is published by our pals at McFarland, and uh, it is kind of a misnomer, the title, uh, because in addition to the uh, the 24 uh, that uh, Stephen kind of just thinks are locks, frankly, to uh, to be included in the Hall of Fame, there's at least... For every one of those, there's probably about two or three others uh, that are worthy of further discussion, also uh, included and discussed uh, in this book. It's great. Uh, it's really uh, good, and it's it's enlightening. Uh, there's some names that surprise uh, that are in there, and there's some, frankly, just a, a wonderful nicknames, just a, is worth the price of admission right there. Uh, and it adds just a whole other layer of color to uh, a great and uh, continually fascinating story about that of the of the Negro Leagues. And um, it'll be interesting to watch, uh, frankly, how the Hall of Fame uh, not only reacts to this book, because it's 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 a pretty good defense about uh, how how these players and these uh, uh, other folks associated with uh, with the with the with the play of the Negro Leagues uh, should be included. There are great cases made here in this in this work, but just generally, right, it's it's uh, one doesn't have to go too far outside of one's house to understand and, and listen to what's going on out there in the world, especially in this country, uh, and the moment in time in which we're in. And uh, lots of things going on, uh, but uh, clearly uh, the uh, the timing perhaps could not be more exquisite to uh, crowbar open finally uh, and let more light in, shall we say, to the uh, Hall of Fame and its uh, uh, ongoing uh, ability to uh, recognize and or include uh, those from uh, from the Negro Leagues uh, of yore. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, our thanks, of course, to our pal Jerry Payne uh, for his uh, efforts this week for helping us put our pieces together. We thank you, kind sir. And uh, let's see. If you uh, want to uh, not only buy this book, uh, well, why don't you buy this book through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com? Uh, there's a little link there to on this episode. Just search up this episode with Stephen Greenis, uh, and you will see a convenient link. Uh, to the book. Uh, you'll be whisked away to Amazon. Uh, when you do buy any book or item through our website, of course, you'll give us a few shekels of love in the process. That helps keep our keep our lights on and the uh, the heat going here so we can keep more shows pumping out for you. Uh, we appreciate that if you do. Of course, if you don't or you want to buy it at your local bookstore or whatever, just buy, however you want to buy the stuff, just do it. Uh, we, we encourage you to support all of our great guests and their works. But if you happen to do it on the, our website, we appreciate it. And there's lots of other stuff on the site, including, by the way, the literary scores of other shows. Uh, almost uh, almost 200 now as we sort of near the end of this, uh, this calendar year. Uh, and they're all there for you. All the great episodes. You can just search them up. There's a nice search 
uh, bars, very convenient, very uh, robust. Uh, you can download them, you can stream them, you can do whatever you want, share them with your friends. Uh, you can also find our social media feeds there too, or just do enter, enter them directly into whatever manner that you follow in the apps or whatever. And that's, uh, let's see, on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still uh, available. Sorry, Good Seats Still available. That's on Instagram, the full the full thing there. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. That's the more truncated version. Uh, on Facebook, there's a little page devoted to us as well. Uh, and of course, you can send us an email if you'd like to. Uh, we're overdue in responding to all the great emails that we've got. Maybe we'll do a, a special mini episode uh, to thank and to answer questions uh, from our uh, voluminous uh, listener mail, shall we call it. Uh, our uh, email address again is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to our little weekly email newsletter. Just search up that on our website and uh, we'll get you a little uh, head start on the uh, the week's proceedings uh, a little uh, ahead of time. Uh, if you want to know what's coming up. And um, I think that's it. Uh, hang on to your hats, everybody. The next couple of weeks are going to be very interesting in our uh, in our respective lives. So please stay safe. Make sure that you uh, give yourself enough time to vote. Uh, and uh, I don't know, just, uh, you know, do your best to, to get through. Uh, take it day by day if you have to. I think uh, we all are in that uh, sort of boat together. And uh, knock on wood, we'll be here for you next week with another hopefully fun-filled episode. Thanks for listening. Take care. And until next week, bye-bye. Thank you.